Let's start out this morning with our homework uh, and see if you're ready to turn in your assignment for today. We've been learning over the course of these weeks, studying the gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which not only opens this particular book of the Bible, but really frames uh, what we are about over these next few weeks. So let's try it together. Mark 1, 1 says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hey, that is pretty good. That is a solid B+. (laughs) Which is above average. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, And gives us a little room to grow. I should say this morning that um, we just got back last night. There was a team here at First Presbyterian this past week that's been down in El Paso, Texas, uh, a mission team led by uh, Miriam to participate in what's called a border encounter experience. Um, and I'll share more about that in a few moments. But knowing that we were going to be gone this week uh, as part of this experience, I thought, well, it would be smart of me to work ahead a little bit and to have the sermon ready to go before we left, which I did. And then we left and had a profoundly meaningful experience this last week. And by about Friday or so, the Holy Spirit said, maybe you should rethink that. And so uh, our reflection together this morning uh, has come together over these last few hours uh, a little differently than I had imagined. Uh, As we sometimes say, if uh, you don't know if God has a sense of humor, just try making plans uh, and see what happens. And that has certainly been true for me this week. I guess to be fair, it's also true for the disciples. Um, The disciples who followed Jesus over these three or so years of ministry, I imagine also often felt like they had made plans or were making plans or predicting plans. And then, well, with Jesus, things often changed at the last minute. And in fact, uh, if we look just before the text that I'm about to read from Mark chapter 5, we see that um, Jesus has been sharing and teaching in parables. That was last week's text, the parable of the sower at the beginning of Mark chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 4, Jesus gets the disciples into the boat to go on to the other side of the lake. He doesn't explain why or tell them anything about it, but he gets them in the boat to go on to the other side. And during that journey, a great storm comes up, and the disciples are spectacularly annoyed that Jesus is asleep during the storm. How can you sleep through anything, they wonder. Which, to be fair, is a question my wife often asks as well at home. How can you sleep through anything? Uh, It's true. And Jesus says to them in that moment, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And I can't help but wonder if that moment out on the lake at the end of Mark chapter 4 is a bit of foreshadowing and preparation for what the disciples are just about to experience at the beginning of chapter 5. And maybe there's something in there for us too. Why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? Let's see what God has in store for us. As we turn to Mark chapter 5 this morning starting at verse 1, listen to God's word for us today. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs 
with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. But the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, I am. And my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Then the swine herds ran off and, uh, and told in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. As we make our way through this season, Mark's gospel, we will often read stories where Jesus has an encounter with someone, and that encounter comes up, it almost seems by accident or coincidentally. Often Jesus and the disciples are simply in the process of going from one place to another place, and Somebody will run up to him, or he will encounter somebody along the road, and that's the context out of which some experience plays out, some lesson plays out. Jesus is constantly getting interrupted by all these things that are coming at him. Uh, it almost reminds me, if you grew up in an era, or maybe your kids grew up in an era, when schools were still teaching driver's education classes. And I can remember when I was in driver's ed as a 15-year-old, we sat in these little simulators that were like a little car with a little steering wheel and a little brake and gas pedal. And we watched these big films 
uh, where it was like you were driving down the road and constantly there were things coming out at you, children and dogs and beach balls and bicycles, and you had to swerve or press on the brake or do something to avoid uh, collision. And a lot of Jesus' itinerary feels a little bit like a driver's education video. There's just things coming at him constantly that he has to dodge or confront and work around or work with. But in this case, unlike all of those other experiences, in this case, what happens is intentional. Jesus has intentionally put the disciples into the boat to cross over to the other side, to cross a kind of border into another place, the land of the Gerasenes, which we understand to probably be a Gentile region, although likely there were Jews who had settled there as well. And he crosses into an unclean place, the place of the tombs, uh, a place that would have been frightening uh, or unclean, not a place that you would choose to go. And yet Jesus has chosen to put the boat in at this part of the shoreline. And then they are immediately confronted by a man who was possessed, we're told, by an unclean spirit. And we'll later find out that the surroundings, the hillsides, are covered with unclean animals. The swine, the pigs. And so it seems that Jesus has made an intentional decision to take the disciples with him into this place that layer after layer after layer is increasingly a frightening an unclean place. And why? Why has he done all of this? Has he done it because he's going there to launch some big evangelistic crusade? Uh, has he done it because he's going to gather thousands of people on the hillside and begin to share with them the beginning of the good news, something about the kingdom of God, so that they can all go back into this, we're told, Decapolis Area. That word Decapolis comes from the words meaning ten cities. This is a region of ten cities of various sizes. And so is Jesus there because he's going to launch some big part of this movement there? No. <laughs> no, actually, it's not any of those things. It appears that Jesus has brought the disciples with him. They've crossed over through the storm, over the borders, over this lake, onto this place that is unclean in multiple ways, all because Jesus intends to encounter one person. Just a single person. That, in and of itself, is worth pausing to reflect on this morning or this week. Just one person. It reminds me of the parable Jesus tells about the shepherd who leaves behind the 99 in order to go in search of the one. We know that story. Some of us have lived that story. And yet to be clear, this isn't Jesus going after one cute, cuddly lamb stuck out in a field somewhere. This is Jesus bringing the disciples to confront a monster of a man, a non-human a kind of animal beast, someone who is harming others and evidently harming himself, who's not only cut off from his community, but he's also cut off from himself, his own personal humanity. He no longer has his given name. The only name he has is the name for what possesses him. That now has become his entire identity. And some of us know that experience as well. 
We talk about that here from time to time. Some of us have been so possessed by something going on in our lives that it becomes our full identity. We are no longer our given name, I am unemployed, or I am incarcerated, or I am only my diagnosis, I am only cancer or dementia, I am only divorced or bipolar. As you can imagine, we could go down a long list of things, the kinds of experiences that we have in our lives that become so overwhelming, they become our entire identity. I am legion, the man says, a name for a battalion of 6,000 Roman soldiers, perhaps a, a kind of symbolism of thousands of demons that he feels are possessing him. That's his entire identity now. He is no longer human anymore. And it appears that Jesus has brought the disciples and they've crossed over all of these borders through all of these layers of uncleanness or chaos in order to meet this single person. As we read the story, Jesus heals the man. He casts the demons out from this man. And the man is restored. And in the final parts of this text, we see that the man is clothed and in his right mind. Now he is a man. A real human man who was possessed by demons. In other words, his humanity has been restored. And you would think, at first glance, that this healing, this restoration, would be cause for celebration, not only for the man himself, but for his whole community. Hooray! <laughs> this one who was lost to us, who was a threat to us and himself, has been restored and renewed. Isn't that good news? Except it isn't, is it? No, it turns out that the community is not thrilled. They're terrified about what has happened. They're afraid and they beg Jesus, the text tells us, to leave their neighborhood. Actually, that word in the translation I read this morning, I don't think is a very good translation. The word in Greek there, when they beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood, is actually the word that can be translated as either coast, that is, leave the coast of our land, but it's also the word that's used for border. In other words, we want you, Jesus, to cross back over the border. In other words, as we sometimes hear people say, go back to where you came from. Go back, Jesus. And I can imagine that there might be a few reasons why they felt that way. First, they may have just simply been terrified about this power that Jesus exhibits. This kind of magic or sorcery that they could not understand or interpret. And perhaps they're afraid that this kind of magic or power could be turned and used against them. That might be one reason. A second is perhaps there was some value in those pigs that just ran off the cliff and into the sea. After all, we understand that the Jews didn't eat pigs. They were unclean animals. We're not quite sure what the uh, demographic makeup is here of Jews and Gentiles. But a lot of biblical scholars believe that those pigs probably were kept to feed the Romans, the Roman soldiers. And we can imagine that there was a very carefully navigated relationship uh, kind of compromised relationship between the indigenous people and the Roman occupiers. 
And those Roman occupiers were probably not going to be very thrilled that a year's worth of BLTs had just run into the sea. I know I would be disappointed in that as well, right? So that might be another reason that they're afraid is because of the potential response of their Roman occupiers. And while I think those are both probably legitimate things to consider, I actually think a third thing might be even more important for us to consider today. And that is that the Gerasenes might have needed that legion to be legion. They might have needed this demoniac in order to project onto this person all of their fear so that that person could be the source of whatever in their lives was causing fear and confusion and brokenness. We have a word for that in our language. Do you know what that is? It's scapegoat. They needed a scapegoat. There's a, a French philosopher named René Girard who writes extensively about how we understand scapegoat and scapegoating in our cultures as we evolve. And in reflecting on this passage, Girard writes, the Gerasenes needed this man and agreed upon bad guy to represent evil. He was someone out there, someone the social structure could cast out. This is how our systems in the world maintain order. Our communities are unified by defining ourselves over and against the other, a common enemy. We know that experience too, don't we? And so I think what Gerard is getting at is that in this context, it's disturbing, it's frightening when the one who was the embodiment of evil is restored and is now just like them. On the one hand, if the one we thought of as the embodiment of evil is like us, well, then we really have to question our own judgment and condemnation of that person. And on the other hand, if the one who was the embodiment of evil is like us, then maybe we're not so different from them and that embodiment of evil either. Maybe we might bear some responsibility for evil and sin in the world. Maybe we are not only the ones who get wounded, but the ones who do some wounding from time to time. We are not only the ones who get broken, but we are the ones who do some breaking from time to time. As we pray every week, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. All of a sudden, things look different in that mirror. And all of this, I think, is such an important commentary on what we're experiencing in the world around us today. Where over and over and over again, we are being encouraged in our culture to demonize the other as a way for us to provide order in our chaotic and confusing world. And perhaps there's no more chaotic and confusing issue these days, no more polarizing issue in our world these days than the one of immigration especially as it relates to our southern border in the United States. That's the context in which a group of us this week went down to El Paso to spend some time on the border, where we were hosted by a nonprofit uh, group, a Christian group called Abara. Now, Abara describes their mission in part in this way. In response to global migration and in a polarizing world, we inspire connections beyond borders through mutual understanding, education, and meaningful action. 
What happens is that they bring groups down, often church groups, but other kinds of groups as well, for a three-day experience where you're invited to spend time listening to people. People who come from all different parts of the process of immigration and who have uh, a representation of all different sides of the issue of immigration. People who are more conservative, people who are more liberal, people who work on the U.S. side, people who work at it on the Mexico side. And we're told right up front, as part of this experience, that we'll hear conflicting sides and stories, even conflicting data and interpretations of data. The encouragement is to hear stories and their perspectives. We're not here to argue. We're not here to change anybody's minds because Lord knows we couldn't change anybody's mind even if we wanted to. There is an acknowledgement of that. Instead, we're here to suspend judgment for three days in order to authentically listen and ask questions to hear real human stories. And in the end, though it may be disappointing, you won't leave with any answers. Unfortunately, we did not solve the border crisis this week. We didn't come up with any solutions this week. But the intention is, and we did come back with a much broader and more deeply informed worldview about the complexity of what's really happening. Among the people that we met included some immigrants, some who have made their way uh, legally, appropriately across the border into the United States and are in the immigration process as either asylum seekers or refugees or with some other status. Um, and we met some uh, immigrants on the Mexico side of the border who have come and are hoping to have an opportunity to make that journey across the border, again, through the processes that are uh, available through our current U.S. political and legal system. And in those experiences, we were invited to sit and hear their stories, who they are, who their families are, why they're here, where they left, why they left, what their hopes are for themselves and their families, what their hopes are for their futures. And we spent time in what might seem like a very different part of the spectrum or process, meeting with Border Patrol agents. And we got to know them and hear their real human stories, who they are, why they work in these jobs, what their hopes are, what they're proud of in this work, what they hope for themselves and for their communities in this work. And in both cases, those who are often demonized became real humans with real lives, hopes for the best of themselves and their communities. And I'll be honest, that was a little inconvenient for all of us because it's a lot easier to go in with an assumption and a decision about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And all of that got dismantled. And like the Gerasenes, we weren't really thrilled with that reality, the real reality of what's happening. Perhaps one of the most informative people that we met was this guy named Michael. Michael kind of blew apart so many uh, assumptions that I had. Michael is the executive director of the Sacred Heart Migrant Shelter. It's the shelter at Sacred Heart Catholic Church, just two blocks from the border. And we were told that we were going to this shelter, a shelter which, by the way, is often, because it's on the border and right in the middle of so much that happens, 
is often in the background when politicians, either Republicans or Democrats, travel to El Paso to announce some concern or some policy or hope for a policy or change in policy. This church and its shelter are often in the background of those scenes. So even though you haven't been there, you've probably seen it on TV. And so with that in mind, I sort of had a preconceived idea about the kind of person Michael would be and what his story would be when we went to listen to him as the executive director of the shelter. Michael began by saying, I am a retired, lifelong Border Patrol agent. What? Yeah, he spent his whole life. He started out as a Border Patrol agent as a young guy. He worked his way up the ranks. He achieved a very high level. He was very successful as a Border Patrol agent. Uh, he worked in Washington, D.C. for a few years. He didn't say under which administration because it didn't matter. He said Border Patrol agents are apolitical. We have a job to do, and we do our job according to whatever policies and procedures are approved under any administration, Republican or Democrat. Though, because he is also a Christian, he's been motivated since his retirement from the agency to come now and volunteer and run this shelter for migrants. It really didn't make sense. He said, in his opinion, a country does get to enact and enforce laws to control and patrol their border. That's absolutely appropriate. And he said in the very next sentence, being a border patrol agent means you can't not be affected by the humanity of the people that you encounter. Their desperation, their real stories and experiences and motivations. Then he said, it's a sign of strength for a country to treat migrants with respect. And it's a sign of weakness to demonize them. I wanted to say, do you know what I'm preaching on on Sunday? How did you know that? And the truth is that for all of us participating in that experience, uh, some of us from First Press, a few others that joined us from other places, we couldn't help but be affected by the humanity of those stories that we heard either. Because all of them were no longer characters in a drama with names like immigrant or border patrol agent. Instead, they were human beings with names like Diana and Michael, Estrella and Walter. In hearing their stories, their full humanity was restored to us so that we no longer only saw them by the labels that are placed on them and sometimes the labels that they place on themselves. We're invited to consider in hearing this story today who the non-humans are in our communities now. Who are the demons in our lives these days? And to be fair, yes, there are times when there are people and ideologies that mean real harm to us, and we should name and confront those people and ideologies. I don't mean to gloss over that. That is also true. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But if we're honest, far too often we are quick to demonize and dehumanize others more broadly and more definitively because it serves our purposes. It simplifies our worldview. It neatly contains and explains the chaos and confusion, the poverty and problems we encounter of all sizes and shapes. 
And then when someone comes along and dismantles those carefully constructed worldviews, it's challenging. It's even disturbing to us. Please, Jesus, we plead, go back, cross back over the water, cross back over the border. Do not change our world. Do not change us. Do not humanize our enemies. Do not expect us to welcome them, to see them, to hear them, to listen to them, to know them, to claim them as our neighbors too in your beloved community. Please, Jesus, don't rock our boat. Just undock your boat and get back in the water and sail, sail away. Ironically, for participants in the Abara border encounter, affluent Americans who arrive on airplanes, the reality of what we see and hear can be challenging and overwhelming and make it difficult to remain hopeful. And yet on the other side of the border, desperately poor people who walk thousands of miles arrive only because they remain hopeful. Borders are strange like that. It turns out that the name Abara that they have adopted comes from a Semitic word which means ford, uh, as in to ford a stream. And ford is one of those funny words that can be both a noun and a verb. Uh, the verb means to cross over a body of water, usually in a narrow uh, or shallow area. Uh, but uh, it's also the noun that describes that place of crossing over. For some of us who went, we thought that we were just going to learn about others who were crossing over the water, but we ended up being invited to cross over some borders in our own minds and hearts, too. During our encounter, those that we might have previously known only as labels have now been humanized for us, and maybe, just maybe, we were rehumanized a bit in the process as well. One participant reflecting on the experience said, the hope I carried with me after the border encounter felt different. This hope was rooted in something substantial and real. This hope points to God's heart for healing and reconciliation, restoration and justice for all God's beloved children. We all may have to cross over some borders within our own hearts and minds in order to be open to the Spirit's insights and inspirations for us at times to be led out of and across our search for easy answers and simplistic scapegoats. And thanks be to God, we don't do this work alone, we often say, but together and with the strength of Christ in whom all things we say are possible. And then, and then when that miracle occurs in and through us as well, we, like the garrison man, the human and now humanized man, we too are encouraged to go home to our friends, to tell them all the ways of what the Lord has done and the mercy that Jesus has shown. And then all will be amazed. Amen.